Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, and this is critically important with 2020 hindsight, to look back at somebody who nailed the last great moment of the bull market. John Golub and Credit Suisse had the courage to come out with a barbell strategy, which was blah, 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 and don't give up on the big techs. He was a genius. The genius joins us this morning. John Golub is head of U.S. equity strategy and quantitative research for credit at Suisse. Now what, John? I, you know, if I, if I have Amazon, Apple, whatever, and I'm going to hold them, what is the prescription to recover? You know, Tom, we actually think that in a high inflation environment, that tech just doesn't do as well. So it's interesting. We, we've been table pounding on tech throughout the last couple of years. But as we rolled into this year, we didn't say short them. We said basically go to neutral because as long as the cycle continues to be inflationary, they just struggle a little bit more. And what we actually see, and, and we've done a whole bunch of quant work around this, is that when inflation is high and stubbornly high, you actually want to be in stuff that's more cyclical, beneficiaries of this. So energy stocks, material stocks, and the like. Not because these are the best stocks forever, but they're the best stocks for the moment. Will those tech stocks continue to have revenue growth? Um, yeah, but if you take a look like in the last, let's say the most recent earnings season, tech names um, you know, grew about 7%, but those cyclical groups grew something like 30 or 40% because they just, they just did better. They have more operating leverage, more physical infrastructure in, in, in the kind of old economy cyclicals, and therefore they have more upside. And if you look at this earnings season, those tech companies were, you know, the, well, the mega cap tech companies were pretty lackluster. So it's not just a sentiment issue. They're, they're having a, a harder time, but, but also they went into the year very expensive. That run that we were predicting in tech played out beautifully. And sometimes you have to know when it's time to take your foot off the pedal which is what we did on tech earlier this year. How do retail earnings fit into your thesis? Well, you know, um, Lisa, the I think that everybody starting really last Friday thought that the worst was behind us. And then with, you know, Walmart and Target news, people felt like they got kicked in the stomach that maybe the consumer is rolling over and companies are going to have margin problems. And then if you actually look, you know, we had a lot of companies like you know TJ Maxx and Home Depot and Lowe's, and they did fine. They, they had beats in the 
high single digits. It was really um, a couple of these prominent names like Home Depot, Lowe's at a harder time. And a lot of those were really what I would call is a mix issue. People were buying groceries, but they didn't want to buy furniture and TV sets. And, and in many cases, these were really merchandising problems. They were kind of the wrong products as people are rotating towards um, experiences in restaurants and hotels and getting back out. So I'm not sure that we should be over extrapolating some of the bad news from those retails. But I will tell you, it surely shook the market in the middle part of this week. So that's the glass half full uh, view of these retail earnings, that basically it is a mix issue, not a consumer health issue. And some people would agree with you, Jonathan, but doesn't that give you a sense that the Fed is going to raise rates all the more so to try to stave off some of the inflationary pressure because the consumer still has momentum and that presents a valuation problem for stocks as we were hearing from Savita Subramanian of Bank of America earlier this morning? Yeah, I'm not sure that the Fed responds to... The, the retail earnings, uh, but I, but I mean, I, but generally they, but, the trend, but, but listen, wage inflation is really high. When, when, when a year ago, when we, when we had 3% inflation, people were saying is, oh, that's peaking. There's no way it could get to 4%. And now we're, we're over eight. So the fed, I don't want to say they're on autopilot for a little while, but they're going to have to push rates, you know, at least to 3%, which is what the market's discounting. And my view is by the end of next year, we may be closer to 4% on, on Fed funds if, if they need to, you know, really, uh, but you know. Hold on a second, Jonathan. In all honesty, then, how can stocks keep rallying? How can you get to near 5,000 by the end of the year on the S&P if you get a 3 or 4% Fed funds rate? Well, I mean, the most important thing is corporate profits are holding up really well. And, and so take a look at this, this earnings season. Revenues are running on the S&P 14% this quarter. Earnings are up 12. So the margin pressure is tiny. But we had this really weird thing going on with the banks, with reserve releases. And if you took that out, the revenues were 15% and the EPS was 20. So the earnings are right. super powerful and stocks are cheap at this point. John, 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 that is the most intelligent thing I've heard this week on equity optimism. That differential equation is linked at the hip with nominal GDP and the decline. Are you suggesting within all the Credit Suisse work that the great miss here is that nominal GDP will sustain longer, which will allow companies to adapt into the gloom Lisa just mentioned? Tom, I think that is the only story. I mean, my favorite, the, the, the one screen that I look at the most of my Bloomberg terminal is ECFC. What, where is the consensus view on what the economy is going to do over the next quarter and year and two years? And what it tells you is that nominal GDP this year yeah. should run at 9%. I mean, normal is three and a half. For all of those folks who say, oh, we're going into recession, economists right. all over are basically saying this is a, a uh, rip-roaring economy. You know, I'm going to tear up here, John. Golub, John Farrow, John Golub has really drunk the Kool-Aid at Credit Suisse, Donaldson, Lufkin, Jenrett. He's on the edge of Tom Galvin here with a sales-centric uh, view. I'm going to try and be polite here. Um, ECFC, okay. John, has that ever been a leading indicator for anything? Well, I mean, you know, Jonathan, you have to use some framework to say directionally, where do we think that the economy is, is, is going? 
So if you're looking at, you know, where inflation is going, you can look at the tips market. If you're looking where GDP is, it's not, there's no tradable instrument on your Bloomberg. You have no choice but to use either your own house economists, who's, and, and, and our economists guys are also pretty bullish, but or, but, or you could just say, where's, where's the whole gang thinking that, um, that, that the, the growth is going to be? And, and that's what you find on the terminal. And not only can you do it, but I can see it by firm. So I can say, what are the biggest shops? What are the people at the Fed think it's going to be? They're all in the same direction, which is the underlying economic growth measured in nominal dollars, that's including inflation, yeah. is going to be really strong this year. And here's the most important thing. And really strong next year as well. That's I'm with yeah, you, that's John. not Golub's view. That's that's that's. No, what I hear all that. Like. I hear all that. It's just the Fed forecast. John, when did the Fed ever forecast a recession? I mean, it's just not. Well, it's they, not in their business, they is it? it? They do it with they do it about a year with a year delay. You know, they <laughs> they do it after the fact. But but I, listen, I I get that. But you have to use some framework to saying where do you think the world is going? If, if you ask me, what the most important issue is on inflation and growth. We have an incredibly tight labor market, which is leaving the consumer really confident in their ability to find work. And, and that leads people to be willing to go out and overextend themselves on credit. And it also means that you have high wage inflation. You add those two things together. It's all about the labor market. And, and that's my take, independent of what you have on that, uh, that forecasting screen. A defiant bull. John, it's going to catch up, buddy, as always. Jonathan Gullov there of Credit Suisse. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, in an important conversation, and I'll go to John Farrow here in a moment, but I want to slip in one question with the United Kingdom's Secretary of State for Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy. He, John, and the rest of the nation enjoying a 9% inflation. Kwasi Kwarteng is with us. He's celebrating Liverpool's European dominance and more than anything understands the gridlock of British politics author a decade ago of Gridlock Nation. What's the level of gridlock right now, Minister, in terms of dealing with 9% inflation? Well, it's a huge uh, challenge, Tom, and you will know that uh, it's a global challenge. We had a pandemic. We had lockdowns right across the world. 
we had a huge surge in demand uh, when those lockdowns uh, were eased. And now we've got this unprecedented uh, situation in uh, Ukraine, first time in 70 years, 75 years, uh, that we're seeing an actual war uh, in Europe. So uh, these are unprecedented times. And the British government has very much uh, decided uh, to help uh, consumers, help uh, people in the UK. We had a, a good announcement from the Chancellor in February about the kind of help uh, that he was willing to give. Uh, and he and the Prime Minister have said that they are looking uh, to help people more. Let's talk uh, about in, that in and whether situation. the consumer, the people of the UK are feeling that right now. Quasi, you wrote a letter recently to petrol retailers about the concerns that the Chancellor's 5p fuel duty cut wasn't being passed on in any visible or meaningful way. What's the response been? Well, we're, we're looking at that still. I mean, I think it's uh, very wrong of uh, petrol, um, the, the, the four courts, uh, not to pass on the reduction. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're seeing that there's some behaviour change, but they could, there's a lot more they could do. And I'm very keen that they, they actually help out. And, and yet you're against on. the windfall tax. Why is that? I've been always against uh, windfall tax. I think they're arbitrary. Uh, I think they discourage investment. And when you look at the companies that um, invest uh, in uh, the North Sea, uh, you know, it's a very cyclical business. So when they make money, they tend to make a lot of money. And then when they lose, they, they, they make big losses. Uh, and they're not, they're not supported when they do make those losses. You've talked about However, investment I, in the UK and you're worried that it would yeah. deter investment. Bernard Looney of sure. BP said to the Times earlier this month, he was asked basically whether he'd change any spending plans because of a windfall tax. And he said, quote, there are none that we wouldn't do. Isn't that good news that you can no, do well, this, th that he won't change his spending plans? He's telling you. Well, it's up to Bernard. I mean, you can speak to Bernard uh, directly yourself. I'm not quite sure what he was referring to, but there's no doubt that other players in the industry... Uh, say that any kind of windfall tax would deter future investment. I mean, that's uh, pretty obvious. Um, and they need fiscal certainty. They don't want uh, rabbits out of the hat, so to speak. Well, BP's the telling us the opposite. I just wanted to jump in with something the Chancellor said sure. too. The Chancellor said, what I want to see is significant investment back into the UK economy to support jobs, to support energy security. And I want to see that soon. If that doesn't happen, then no options are off the table. Now, as you know, Quasi, the prudent response from any Chancellor is not to take things off the table ahead of a budget. Exactly right. But I want your view on that. I want some goals. I want to understand what kind of investments you want to see from these players and over what time frame. Because if we're going to wait for these guys, they've got a 10-year time horizon for their spending plans. We'll be out a decade and then we'll say, oh, OK, maybe we should do a windfall tax now. What's the time frame? How much spending do you want to see over what time? We want to see spending. I'm not going to quantify it, but we want to see actual real spending. And there's evidence that they're doing that. I mean, if you look at our program for carbon capture, uh, blue hydrogen production, both Shell and BP are directly involved uh, in that uh, in the northeast of our country, of England. And they, they, they can see uh, that uh, there is a huge opportunity in terms of green investment. And that's exactly what the, the, the Chancellor, the kind of investment the Chancellor wants to see. And as you say, the Chancellor's quite right to say uh, all options are on the table. Every Chancellor I've known since I've been a, uh, an MP has always said that. There's no way that he's going to take options off the right. table ahead of the budget. Dr. Corting, you enjoy a PhD in economic history from a small shop, the University of Cambridge. <laughs> you know the history right. of this, and the simple history is windfall profit taxes do not work, period. It's well documented. But as John alludes to, there is a generational trust that has been broken between corporate elites and the people. How do you guarantee, given the lack of trust, 
a process here that helps the people of the United Kingdom. So that's why the Chancellor was very clear, Tom, that uh, they have to invest uh, in the UK. We want to see their ambitions uh, realized by their investment. Do you investment. need it the in writing? Does, is, is it so urgent that it needs to be codified, to be in writing? I think, I think the commitments uh, are already there. I'm not sure that we need any kind of legal document or quasi-legal document. But what, what uh, they understand is that these new technologies, uh, the decarbonization, all of that stuff, uh, needs investment. And it actually creates jobs. And you will also know that we're very interested, uh, very focused on leveling up. That's actually giving opportunity to areas of our country in the UK, which in the last few years, few decades, have been underinvested. And so BP and Shell and others know that our commitment uh, to leveling up and our commitment uh, also to, to uh, decarbonization mean that, that business uh, investment needs to happen. And they're very aware of that. And they also know, as the Chancellor said, that if they don't step up to that plate, uh, then they could well be subject to a windfall tax. Because I think just, that's a reasonable conversation. Just a final question, sir. Just on the final point, to understand what people are going through right now, if they listen to this conversation, you've got a company, BP, engaged in buybacks. I'm not here to say that's the wrong thing. They've referred to themselves as a cash machine when oil prices are climbing like they are. You've got the CEO who's saying he wouldn't change his spending plan if he faced a windfall tax. And we've got the government saying, we don't want to do that. You're saying that. Do you understand how deeply uncomfortable that might be for people who can't pay their energy bills this month? Look, it's really difficult, but the, the investment actually helps people. People have pension plans. They, have, uh, they want to have jobs. Uh, they want to have energy security. So I can't, as an energy uh, minister, say, please invest in our energy security of supply, but by the way, I'm going to give you a, a windfall tax. That doesn't make sense. In order to, to protect energy supply, we need investment. And in order to have investment, uh, they need a, we need a, fis a stable fiscal situation. We can't simply just threaten people with or have arbitrary windfall taxes. Having said all of that, uh, as you know, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is responsible for the budget, and yep. he's not taking any options off the table. And he and wouldn't be right the first Chancellor to, to do it, as you know, because we could exactly. go back to the Conservative Chancellor of 1981 who did something similar. Kwasi, thank you. Great to catch up. Thank Let's you catch very up much. Soon. Thank you, sir. Kwasi Kwarteng of the UK, the Secretary of Energy and Business. It is a joy right now uh, on this Friday as we regroup again for meetings with someone who stopped us in Davos a couple years ago. Savita Subramanian was in Davos with her Bank of America holding court on ESG. She's head of U.S. equity and quantitative strategy for uh, the bank. Savita, time has marched on. ESG seems so yesterday's story, given record <laughs> coal prices as well. How does the shock of these many global risks fold over in to moving forward in the stock market. How do you regroup now to get ready for 2023? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that where we are now is, Tom, a tough time for ESG investors because the best performing areas of the market are hard to hold. Defense, energy, these are two areas that are typically excluded from ESG funds. So I think that's been hurting these, uh, these types of investors. From a market perspective, I still think the worst is not behind us. Um, we published yesterday that you know, sort of a realistic worst case floor for the S&P 500 would be about 3,000, 3,200. 
100. Um, you know, here's the thing. I think when I talk to clients now, folks are asking me, you know, give me any reason to be bullish right now. And I think the reasons to be bullish are the fact that clients are asking that question. There's a pervasive uh, kind of fog of negative sentiment out there, which would argue that a right. lot of the bad news is priced in. I think what you want to buy at this point in the cycle is still very late cycle inflation beneficiary. So we're still overweight energy. I think energy, you know, to, to your point about China reopening, energy could be, oil could be depressed right now, just given the fact that the second largest economy in the world is offline. Um, I think that materials look less interesting to us, commodities and metals, because we are seeing some slowing trends in China, despite the fact that they are trying to, you know, stimulate the economy. And we're also seeing a shift in demand from finished hard goods and you know big ticket items to services. So under that backdrop, it makes sense to right. continue to go long oil, but you know maybe move off of the, the raw materials. Savita, long ago and far away, a guy named Ken Lewis was pilloried at Bank of America, and I always thought that Ken Lewis was brilliant on his Pacific Rim strategy. Bank of America didn't go into the Pacific Rim with their head cut off. They were very measured about it and attempted to be responsible. I want to know what you think about the bet on Pacific Rim equities given a China reopening. Is it worth playing or do you stay in the U.S.? I think you stay in the U.S. I mean, look, I, you know, this this year we've seen a very interesting re-rating of countries based on energy security. Countries that can don't need to import oil are probably, you know, kind of enjoying a, a, a unique advantage. And, and I think that second of all, the U.S. is further along in terms of trying to stimulate the economy, trying to push up interest rates. We have corporates and consumers that are better capitalized. They've, you know, basically gotten all this money from the Fed and the government. So I think that when I look at the U.S. relative to rest of world, I still think this is a year or two where the U.S. is going to continue to outperform rest of world. So emerging markets to me still looks a little bit, uh, uh, you know, potentially risky. Not to mention that if you look at our economists, they're revising down their growth forecasts outside of the U.S. much more aggressively than within the U.S. So I think those are all reasons to stay local, stay U.S. focused. Even small caps, I think, could do well in an environment where the U.S. economy is potentially, you know, going to see a little bit of a lift if companies start spending again. You know, Tom, I just want to say the most surprising thing to me during this earnings season is that even though all of these companies are guiding down and, you know, very negative in terms of what they're expecting over the next couple of years, they're still guiding up on CapEx. They're still telling us they're going to spend more than we think they're going to spend. CapEx cycles are generally good for the economy. They're good for small caps. Maybe they're negative for the companies that have to spend the money. But I think it's interesting to see that CapEx is still a theme that companies haven't dialed back. Savita, this week, staples have been absolutely hammered. Retail's really yes. struggled. You've been on top of that story. I want to understand from your perspective whether we're confusing two things right now, the difference between how much the consumer is spending 
and how they're spending gear. There seemed to be a massive focus on just the weakness, the signal that you were getting from the retailers that there was some weakness out there. Do you think the biggest yep. story this week was just a shift in how they're spending, not how much they're spending? I so I think the big shifts were how they're spending and also just, you know, labor. There's a there's a sort of a, a really dramatic shift in terms of undersupply to oversupply that we're hearing from companies. And that could actually benefit some of the um, more labor intensive areas of, of the uh, consumer sector, like supermarkets or, you know, we haven't seen these companies perform well, but I think that where we're where we are seeing a little bit of an alleviation is in terms of the, the labor supply. So that's, you know, potentially a positive for margins. We're, we're overweight staples for the long haul because our idea is, as Ethan Harris, our global economist, continues to warn of rising recession risks, we think that staples, healthcare, no matter what, you still have to take your drugs and you know eat your food. So defensive sectors to us still make a lot of sense. In a stagflationary backdrop, the best performing sectors are energy, consumer staples, utilities, to a lesser extent materials. You want to stay defensive and you want to overweight sectors that benefit from inflation. Savita, you sound actually uh, somewhat pessimistic, and yet your outlook for the end of the year is incredibly optimistic at a 4,500 target. Yes, 3,200 might be the low case. Are you thinking of downgrading the 4,500 as the base case? And if not, how do we get there? Look, so, you know, our, our target is made up of, a, you know, a few different factors, one of which is our, our house view on interest rates. And I think that is the swing factor. If you look at this year, most of the big moves that we've seen have been accompanied by a move higher in either real rates or the equity risk premium. Our view is that real rates continue to move higher, but rates volatility kind of abates and we start to see, um, you know, P.E. multiples uh, essentially stabilize as rates volatility stabilizes. If that's not the case, we would be more negative. And I think that's the key factor to watch. Every tiny move in interest rates has an outsized impact on the S&P 500 in terms of you know its longer duration. And we've talked about this on the program. The sure. S&P 500 is now a 35-year zero-coupon bond. It is super sensitive to the cost of capital. Savita, are you saying this is Ethan's fault or, or Mark's fault? <laughs> Whose fault is it? Both. <laughs> I'll no, let you I mean, run. I think they're both, they're both excellent, but, uh, of but course. yeah, we, we incorporate their but views. At she's going to get out of this. We're watching. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Dig that hole. No, we're done. We're done. Okay. Savita, thank you. Oh, Savita, Brian, appreciate yeah, it. Brian, yeah, Brian. I know. Savita, she's digging a hole, Brian. Of Bank of thank America. you so That's much. Good. They're all friends over there. Yes. Mark Abana, Ethan they Harris. Are? Savita. They are, Tom. They're all friends. I love that. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, 
a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, John Riding joining us here, Chief Economic Advisor, Bring Capital. But on a Friday before the close of Premier League football, Lisa and I open this up for full discussion with a gentleman of Preston North End and Young Farrow as well. John Farrow, the only player I remember from my youth was Gerard. Oh, you love him, don't you? I, I, I don't understand why I loved him, but I loved him. And I want you and Riding to talk right now about Sunday and for America, why Steve Gerrard really matters. There's a great subplot to the story on Sunday. So on Sunday, you've got Manchester City top of the league of the Premier League. You've got Liverpool second. Manchester City win, it's all over. But Manchester City, John Riding are playing Aston Villa, and Aston Villa are coached by Stevie G, the former great captain of Liverpool. That is a nice little subplot going into Sunday's games. Yeah, and, and add to the fact that uh, two of uh, the key players for Aston Villa are former Liverpool players in Danny Ings uh, and in Philip Coutinho, uh, who were arrested against Wolverhampton uh, yesterday, uh, sorry, against Burnley yesterday. And uh, you've got a, a potential uh, a chance for those uh, two. If, 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 if they hold City, they'll deserve uh, winner's medals from Liverpool. That I is think. a big, big game. Tom, not just for Manchester City and Liverpool, but for some of those people at Aston Villa as well. So lining things up on Sunday, Tom, I've talked Eastern time, 11 Eastern, all the games all at once, the final games of the year, yeah. all played simultaneously. It is great to see. Lisa, is there a soccer bar in Davos? I mean, is this what I'm sure you'll find on one, Sunday? Tom. Oh, the Bramo Cam Club are not paying attention. <laughs> Please leave me what on this shot. one. I'm good. I'm good. I wanted to talk about uh, John Riding's experience yeah, Lisa, at the Atlanta Fed. I wanted Ryan. to actually John wants talk, to talk about, about Liverpool and Preston. I know. North well, End. fine, John, but I want to talk about the Fed. So bear Please, with me. Lisa. Let me just take a quick uh, move over there, and then you guys can all talk about football. Thank you. And I will let you go to the pub together on it. I am curious, though, especially after being at the Atlanta Fed uh, Confab just recently, there seems to be a belief in Mark markets, that the Fed is going to recognize the slowdown that we're seeing in some of the data and respond by pausing, by not raising rates as much. That seems to be opposite the rhetoric from Fed officials. What was the scuttlebutt when people were talking to you, when they were not on camera, when they were not on the podia? What did they say when it came to their frustration with markets and their belief in a Fed put? Well, what's remarkable is they don't pay, Fed officials don't pay anywhere near as much attention to the markets as we do on a day-to-day, sadly, minute-to-minute uh, basis. Um, and you have to think, where were the markets? In the fourth quarter of last year, before the Fed had made its pivot, they were seeing very little interest rate action uh, from the Fed this year. And then they overshot Fed guidance this year uh, to get into the point where it was almost half a point at every meeting. Uh, and now uh, markets are, are pulling back a bit. I think the Fed's looking, they've, they've, they've laid out the game plan. 
we want to get some rate hikes underneath our belt. Uh, and we're going to get 50 basis points done in June, 50 basis points done in July. That takes you to the September meeting. And that is really the key meeting for, I think, for where short-term interest rates are going, because it's all about inflation persistence at that point. Uh, and if inflation has ebbed sufficiently, then they're going to look for an opportunity to dial back, I think, on the rate hikes and slow to quarter point rate hikes. But the experience that people have had with the Fed for the last 20 years or so will not particularly help them guide the Fed because it's different because we've got 19, late 70s, early 80s style inflation. We haven't had that in the last 20 or 30, well, obviously in the last 40 years doing arithmetic. Uh, and so market responses to the Fed, equity market responses to the Fed aren't, we're not going to see the same kind of uh, sensitivity uh, of the Fed to market moves yeah. as we've had when inflation was not a problem. So, John, it actually is probably appropriate that you guys started the conversation talking about football and that people would rather talk about football right now than this, because it's basically been the same story for a number of weeks now. And basically, the Fed is going to do its thing. It's on autopilot. Let's reconvene in September and see what happens. It's a quiet day for data, for data, excuse me. Going forward, what's going to change this narrative? Is there a data point or a series of them that you're looking for to really guide into September? It's... The persistence of inflation, Lisa. The Fed, my all, all my interactions, all my reading, the, the, the Fed is serious about getting inflation back towards the 2% target. And the problem is they don't know what it's going to take to get there. There's something of an odd narrative coming from Fed officials where they talk about 2.5% being neutral because that's the long-run neutral rate when inflation is back at the 2% target rate. And right now, inflation is much, much higher than that. And underlying inflation is probably somewhere around 4%. So the Fed's talking about, well, we need to get back to neutral, and then maybe we'll have to get a, a little bit restrictive and throwing that 2.5% number out there as the estimate of neutral once inflation's defeated. And that's a little bit putting the cart before the horse when you're trying to defeat inflation. But they are insistent, I think, they're going to get moved towards that 2% target. And so... The opportunity to dial back is going to depend how much inflation has fallen over the summer. And I, I think that the chances are that inflation doesn't ebb as much as the Fed is hoping at this point. Because the broad, for two things, there's the broad-based nature uh, of the price increases. And, and we calculate in the last CPI report, for example, uh, there was 63% uh, of the items within CPI that were rising at a 6% or faster uh, rate over the last year. So that, that, that's very broad-based persistence. That's the first thing. And secondly, there's inflation <clears throat> expectations by the public. And they are holding in, uh, in longer-term expectations by their fingernails. And yesterday... Um, we had the Philadelphia Fed reporting that 10-year inflation expectations by businesses had gone up from 3 to 3.5%. People are seeing food price increases, and very sadly, and this conflict in the Ukraine has such terrible humanitarian dimensions, but the main economic dimension for the U.S. may well be higher food prices because of the impact on grain exports, because of the impact on fertilizers. And that feeds into people's expectations because that is repeat shopping every week okay. where they see prices John, rise. That was a clinic. I, I want to go back to David Melpass, John Writing, and Conrad de Quadros of ages and ages ago, John. And the bottom line is maybe for whatever reasons, your worry back then has happened. We are so far 
from any constructed Taylor rule right now. It's unthinkable. And as you correctly say, we're hanging on to inflation expectations by our fingernails. What do institutional leaders do to quell the fear of higher inflation expectations? What's the prescription to keep us hanging on by our fingernails? Well, I I think what we really need is a new monetary policy framework strategy. I think one area- Targeting? Are you going to go all New Zealand on me here? Well, look, the Fed has a 2% inflation target and had a 2% inflation target. That worked out. But they bemoaned missing it to the low end by a few tenths of a percentage point. So they adopted a deliberate strategy to raise inflation and and raise it above 2% by a moderate amount for some time. And now, careful what you wish for, we've got it substantially above 2% for a prolonged period of time. And, and now, what, what, is the, what is the strategy? They need to really reassure the public in various ways, not just in Fed statements, that they are very serious in getting inflation down. Because it turns out inflation is not the stimulus to economic activity that the Fed hoped, at least moderate inflation. It's hard to hold it at 2%, and the public hates inflation. Uh, you know, Jonathan and I, for example, have talked about this a lot, about what our mothers think about it, and neither of our mothers think that uh, inflation is very good for them when they see what's okay, happening John, to the utility bills. John Farrell, talk about that right now. You and writing are living this in real time. Oh, the family chat yesterday was lighting up, Tom, just in terms of petrol prices going up, up, up and away. And John... Just to speak to what the mums are going through right now, for you and I, for personally, the, the call I get all the time is about a utility bill at the end of the month. And for those listening in, don't worry, I pay it. And I'm sure John does too. And um, John, things are getting really, really tough for people. What we saw this week from the retailers was just a shift in where they're spending. I'm not sure if we saw a drop off in how much they're spending though, John, because when I hear from the airlines, the airlines are talking up how robust things are, how resilient the consumer is, that the price tolerance is still there. What's your read on that, John? Well, I I think that's right. I think that companies are having difficulty managing an inflationary environment and an environment in which there are severe labor shortages. You know, we need more workers. And, and you, you know, this, this is a weekend, fortunately, across New York City where we're going to see uh, those future workers uh, appear, as you see all the uh, grads, uh, graduates on, on the street. And, and that's great and that's hopeful for the future. But right now we're in an environment of labor market constraints. And those constraints are causing companies difficulty in managing um uh, managing their businesses. Uh, and so I, I think the story of those uh, retailers early in the week was really more of a margin story than it was a consumer spending story. After all, April retail sales looked fairly sprightly numbers. Yeah. April industrial production looked quite strong. Even April housing starts were, were flat on the first quarter, and that, that's the most interest-sensitive sector of the economy. So I, I think all these fears that this is really about demand shortages are misplaced. There's tremendous excess demand, almost two job openings per worker. As I said, that's good news for those graduating this weekend. Um, but um, you know, it re- it, 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 if we take some demand out of the economy, we're really taking excess demand out. Uh, and and I'm, my fears of recession in the short run are, are, are very low. The, the problem is the longer term if these inflation expectations mm. become embedded. John, 15 seconds on the clock. Finish where we started. Results Sunday. Prediction. Uh, Liverpool win and uh, Aston Villa hold City to a draw and the quadruple still on. There we go. John Riding of Bring Capital. John, thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.